Well, hey, everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're joining us in the room or from online, from wherever you happen to be, we're honored to have you along for the ride. Uh, today, we get to continue a series called Six Things You Should Know About the Bible. And to be honest, this is an intensely personal set of talks for me for four very good reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, as many of you know, my wife, Sarah Ann, and I have four sons, uh, ages between 9 and 15, and our eldest drives in two weeks. You have been warned. There you go, right? But yeah, four boys, and it's long been our desire that they would build their faith in Jesus on a firm foundation. And that firm foundation would include learning to read the Bible for themselves in the way that it was intended to be read. Now, anyway, a few years back, uh, we gave a Bible to our eldest son, Carter, for his 12th birthday. We call him our practice kid. Do you have one of these? Yeah, like, you're just going to try stuff with number one. If it doesn't go well, you're going to modify. You know what I mean? He always says, like, Dad, I didn't get to watch Star Wars until I was, like, 10. And Wilson, the youngest, he got to watch it when he was five. And I was like, practice kid. There you go, right? But anyway, on his 12th birthday, uh, Carter was unwrapping this Bible, and as he was unwrapping it, because he kind of hoped it was a video game, to be honest, but anyway, he's opening the Bible, and I had a thought, uh, and the thought was this, you know, I probably should give him a little bit of an orientation before he tries to start reading the Bible. And I say that because, honestly, after teaching the Bible almost every week for decades, I know what a lot of you know, the Bible is not always the easiest book to read and apply. And uh, later that week, I remember I was at Starbucks with a good friend and I sort of shared with him this thought and he looked back at me and he said, you know, dude, I think a lot of people would like to hear your orientation to the Bible. He said, because I know a lot of people, good people, church people, people who grew up in the faith, who really struggle when trying to read the Bible or who don't read the Bible because it's such a struggle. And so this series is my admittedly inadequate attempt to orient you to the Bible by sharing six things that I've discovered over the years that I'm convinced can help you read the Bible as it was intended to be read. Okay, so now each week in this series, I've begun our time together by sharing an initial observation that sort of helps us understand why the Bible is so easy to get confused by. And the statement goes like this. Though the Bible looks like a book, it doesn't read like a book because it isn't really a book. It's, it's actually more like a collection or small library of 66 books written over some 1,500 years by around 40 different authors. Authors who were real people living in real places at real times, and, and people who were profoundly influenced by the social, political, and cultural realities in which they wrote. Moreover, as it turns out, the story of how these 66 different books came together, came to be bound as what we call the Bible, is absolutely critical in understanding how to read the Bible properly. Okay, so now with the time that we have today, I want to answer a question that flows out of the past two weekends' teachings. But obviously, before we go there, I need to take a moment to review where we've been for the benefit of those of you who haven't been with us. Uh, and so, so far in this series, we've been exploring how the Bible, like at the highest level, is organized around something called covenants. Uh, in the ancient world, a covenant was simply an agreement 
that define the terms of a relationship. And we've noted that the authors of the Bible recorded a few different covenants that at times define the terms of relationship between a particular group of people and God. In other words, they outlined what this particular group of people needed to do in order to maintain peace in their relationship with God. And, and this is pretty cool, we've noted, most of us are already familiar with the two most famous covenants in the Bible, even if you don't know it yet. They're called the Old Covenant, or Old Testament, and the New Covenant, or the New Testament. The Old Testament outlined the terms of relationship between God and the people of ancient Israel for around 1,500 years leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And the New Testament outlines, like present tense, the terms of the relationship between God and really the entire world following the crucifixion of Jesus. So we covered that. And then finally, last week, I mentioned that when reading the Bible, it's absolutely imperative to identify the covenant under which the section that you're reading was written. Because if you don't, then it can become incredibly confusing. I mean, and I said it this way last week, uh, though all of the Bible was written for you, not all of the Bible was written to you. And if you've ever tried to re read the Bible carefully, you already know that that has to be true. Because there are times when the Old Testament commands and the New Testament commands are like in direct conflict with one another, so much so that it would be impossible to obey them simultaneously. And so here's an example to show you what I mean. Uh, midway through Jesus' most famous block of teaching, scholars call it the Sermon on the Mount, he looks out at his almost exclusively Jewish audience and he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And Jesus' almost exclusively Jewish audience had heard that before. I mean, they had grown up memorizing the laws of the Old Testament. And in this moment, Jesus quoted something that a man named Moses had revealed to the people of Israel about how God wanted them to live. And so here's what Moses had told them 1,500 years or so before the Sermon on the Mount. Moses had said, Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so, okay, like during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quotes a well-known command that presumably had shaped the lives of the people of Israel for generations. And then instead of explaining how he understood what it meant to follow that command, which is what they would have been expecting, Jesus absolutely stunned his audience by saying, well, he said, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but. And I'm telling you, that is a big but. Thank you. You might even say it's one of the biggest buts in the entire Bible. And, and, and the people listening would have thought, what do you mean, but? You can't but Moses, but Jesus did. And, and, and check out what he said next. But, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. He said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, then hand over your coat as well. And like this goes without saying, but I mean, it's impossible to take an eye for an eye while at the same time turning the other cheek. In other words, like these two commands, one by Moses and the other by Jesus, are fundamentally incompatible. However, and this is huge, Though they are fundamentally incompatible, 
both are in the Bible, and both were relevant in, at the times in which they were given, and only one of them applies to followers of Jesus today. That, that's what I mean when I say knowing which parts of the Bible are to you can clear up a lot of the frustration and the confusion that is often characterized attempts to read and apply the commands in the Bible. Okay, so now that brings us to that really good question that flows out of all this. And, and a few of you accosted me at Costco this week and actually verbalized this question. So I thought you'd be thinking it and you were thinking it. So that's good, right? Um, and it's a question I want to give you and I want to work on answering. And the question goes like this. I mean, it's fair for us to ask, if the rules in the Old Testament aren't for us, then why should a Christian read the Old Testament at all? <laughs> like what's the point? And, and as it turns out, there are a couple of really great reasons that Christians that aren't Jewish in background should read the Bible. And before I show you what they are, I need to give you a little bit of a history lesson in order to explain why non-Jewish or Gentile Christians got interested in the Old Testament in the first place. Now, it may surprise you to learn that Gentile Christians have been interested in the Old Testament for almost as long as there have been Gentile Christians. And here's why. After placing their faith in Jesus, many non-Jewish Christians became absolutely fascinated with the Bible that Jesus had studied while he was growing up. They would have called it the Hebrew Bible because it was originally written in Hebrew. And by the end of the first century, Gentile Christians began to embrace the Hebrew Bible as sacred, as inspired, as influenced by God. However, and this is absolutely critical for us to understand, while early Gentile Christians were interested in the Jewish Bible, they weren't at all interested in the Jewish religion. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, it's because they understood that although Jesus came to earth as a Jew under the Old Covenant law, his mission and message went well beyond ancient Israel and the Old Covenant law. That his death on the cross had established a new covenant between God and the whole world. And, and so consequently, early Gentile Christians adopted the Jewish Bible for the sake of the story, but they felt absolutely no pressure to take on the Jewish culture or to obey the Old Testament commands. Instead, they began to explore the Old Testament in order to find clues about Jesus. And here's what's so cool. As they opened that ancient text and as they began to search they found the clues pointing to Jesus everywhere. I mean, Bible scholars will tell you that throughout his life, Jesus fulfilled many, many Old Testament prophecies. And to early Gentile Christians, that fact affirmed that Jesus' life had been set apart on purpose, for a purpose by God, well before it even began. I mean, they knew who Jesus was. He was the anointed one. He was the promised one. He was the one for whom the world had been aching. And he was the one who had changed everything for everyone. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And so consequently, the Old Testament writers had recorded prophecies about Jesus' birth, his mission, his life, and amazingly, even his death and his resurrection. I think one of the most fascinating is recorded in the writings of an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah, who lived 600 years or so before the time of Jesus. 
Isaiah wrote of this mysterious, he called him a suffering servant, whose hardships would benefit not only ancient Israel, but the whole world. And he said it this way. Isaiah wrote that this suffering servant was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. He writes, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by the way, transgressions and iniquities are other words used to describe sins. And so, obviously, for the people of ancient Israel, the first people to hear Isaiah's words, this prophecy raised a lot of questions because, well, God had given them the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system to deal with their sins. And so, what could this mean? Well, Isaiah kept writing, and they got some more clues. They said, the punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He goes on to say, the Lord laid on him the inequity of us all. In other words, Isaiah wrote that somehow, some way, God placed on this suffering servant the sins of the whole world. Now check out what he says next. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, this suffering servant died for the transgressions of many people. He was stricken. He said he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, and then check this out. He says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. In other words, after this suffering servant dies, he will breathe again and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their inequities. And I'm telling you, that is absolutely incredible. I mean, think about this. This is 600 years before the time of Jesus, and it contains unbelievably precise details about his mission, his death, and even his resurrection. In fact, this particular prophecy is so compelling that it captured the attention of early Gentile Christians who began to study the entire Old Testament through the lens of of Jesus. And as it turns out, that was incredibly valuable for them, and it's incredibly valuable for us to do the same. Okay, so that's like the first reason I'm convinced that followers of Jesus should study the Old Testament. But I actually think there's another reason as well, and it's our big idea for today, and it goes like this. Uh, the Old Testament contains the history of God preparing the world for the Savior. In other words, the Old Testament is the backstory that helps us understand and appreciate the events in Jesus' life. And moreover, those 38 books in the Old Testament contain an incredible record of God's progressive movement towards a creation that had turned away from him in almost every way imaginable. And the reality, the, and the reality that like a good father... God always accommodated his message to the capacity of his children to receive it. And that sounds great, but practically what that means is that some of the things that we read in the Old Testament will seem incredibly primitive 
and culturally backwards. Because from our perspective in 2023, they are. But here's the thing. What is incredibly primitive and culturally backwards to us was radically progressive at the time it was given. So here's an example to show you what I mean. Um, in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book in the Old Testament, God gives the following instructions to his people shortly before they enter the land that he had promised to their ancestors. So here's what God told the people. And hang with me, it, it's a little strange. Okay, he says, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, okay, so far so good, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. And we're like, hmm, see, okay. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head. I'll tell you what that's about in a second. Trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. He keeps going. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And then he, finally this. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. And okay, so now obviously we read this passage today, or maybe we don't read it because of what it says, right? And, and, and we think, my goodness, um, this is so, and I was so worked up about this this week, I even made a list. I think this is what you're thinking. This is so primitive and barbaric and sexist and demeaning and degrading, right? And I ran out of room on my slider. I, I could have kept going, right? And we look at this and we go, how could anybody who respects women read these instructions and not think they were anything but ridiculous, See, but here's the thing. As you might suspect, there's more going on in this passage than meets the eye. And here's why I say that. This passage deals with something in the ancient world called the spoils of war. And in ancient times, there were rules or generally accepted practices around the spoils of war. Uh, basically, you know, people would go to war with one another and there would be a winner and there would be a loser. And the conventional wisdom of that day said whoever won the battle uh, got whatever had belonged to their adversaries. And th that would include animals and jewelry and tents and food and slaves and, yes, even wives. And the general rules of the spoils of war said that the winner could do whatever they wanted with this property or these people. In fact, in the ancient world, when a man wasn't pleased with a woman who he had won in battle, notice my cynical air quotes, won in battle, right? He was free to send her away into a foreign culture in which she had absolutely no rights or protections. And as a result, she often had no option to survive but to turn to prostitution. So that was the world into which this message was first given. And don't miss this, this instruction expressly forbids sending a rejected woman away. In other words, like this instruction was a significant deviation from an improvement to the ancient cultural norms regarding the spoils of war. It was a massive step in the right direction. I mean, think about it. Like when someone took a woman, they won as a spoil of war into their home, they were instructed to provide for her like a roof over her head and protection and food and clothing. 
And when, when they allowed her to shave her head and trim her nails and change her clothes, which is weird to us, it was, that was how you physically demonstrated to other people that you were mourning. And so God says to these people, listen, you've got to let her mourn her loss. It, it, it had been horrific. And so give her the space she needs to grieve because she's not a possession. She's a person. And she deserves respect. Moreover, you know, when, when the command was to make the woman, uh, one in war, a wife, if that was what the, the person who won the war desired, that meant that she would be granted the rights and responsibilities of a full member of the household. So I'm, t I'm telling you, like, this instruction was a revolutionary step forward at the time it was given. We, we look back on it and see it as offensively regressive. And from our perspective, it is. But this was never a command that God intended for us. Not that you thought that it was, right? But this wasn't intended for us. This was for them then. And we need to keep that in mind if we're going to read the Old Testament as it was intended to be read. We need to allow ourselves as much as possible to enter the original context. And when we do, that empowers us to see the Old Testament for what it was, for what it is, a collection of radically progressive documents given to an ancient people who were very literally on a mission from God. Okay, so, so then why should Christians today read the Old Testament if the instructions contained in it were never intended for us. Well, I'd argue that to ignore the Old Testament is to miss the mess into which God was willing to wade in order to see the story of redemption played out to its bloody crucified end. And the Old Testament records the epic saga of ancient Israel struggling to survive in a world where food was scarce, enemies were real, and death was just a minor infection away. But like in spite of all that, the children of Israel somehow clung to God, and he clung to them, careful not to override their freedom with his presence. And that, that is a story that continues to inspire people all over the world to this day. All that to say, the Old Testament records ancient history with a divine purpose. The story of the Old Testament, the story of the Jewish people is absolutely incredible just as it is. And, and so we shouldn't try to ignore it or clean up the messy parts. I mean, it's not our spiritual guidebook, and it never was intended to be. Like, instead, though, behind all the rules and the stories, it allows us to glimpse the work of a God who created all of us, who over a period of generations was preparing the world for the Savior. And that, my friends, is the third thing that I think you should know if you want to read the Bible as it was intended to be read. Okay, so now before we close our time together, uh, we have an incredible opportunity to take communion this morning. 
And communion is a way to remind ourselves of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf on the day that his body was broken on the cross and his blood was spilled to ratify that new covenant between people and God. And just a, a few housekeeping notes, especially if you're visiting with us. You don't need to be a member here at Keystone in order to participate. Um, honestly, we don't have any members. And so the joke around the office is if we made it only for members, it'd be really awkward because no one would do it, right? So, but just, yeah. So if you're here, we only ask that you have had a moment in your life where you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. Um, and uh, also, if you're here and maybe like part of your New Year's resolution was that you were going to give church one more try and you're just you're fascinated by Jesus, but you're not sure what to do with him. And you're saying, you know, I'm still not sure I'm across that line of faith. First, we're just honored that you're here. You're one of the reasons that Keystone was started so many years ago for a, a safe place to come and wonder and to ask questions. So we're just honored that you're with us. But please feel no pressure to participate in communion. Uh, whenever you are ready, um, we will be delighted to welcome you uh, to participate with us. But again, judgment-free zone, no problem. And if you're here and you have uh, children or students with you, uh, we trust that parents know when it's right for their students to begin to participate. And so, again, uh, that's a judgment um, that we will leave to the parents. And so in just a moment, the band is going to play a song to give you some space to reflect. And then when, whenever you're ready, you're welcome to come and to take the bread body of Jesus that was broken for you and to dip it into the cup to remember the blood of Jesus that was spilled for you and as you take the bread and you dip it in the cup please just remember remember how much you are loved by your heavenly father and remember as well the new sort of life he's invited you to live in response to receiving that love after the song, I'll come back and I'll close our time together in prayer.
2,000 years ago, through an incredible invasion of grace, you changed the course of human history. We are here because of Jesus, because he lived, because he died, and because he rose again. Thank you for the light and the life and the hope we have in his name. Thank you for the new covenant in his blood, the covenant in which we stand covenant in which you have taken care of all that separates us from peace with you once and for all. We are forever grateful. May we be a people that takes the light of that gospel into our lives this week, into our families, into our workplaces, into our world, a world that so desperately needs hope. So for this morning, we say thank you bless you. And we love you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part four.